following program is being done under protest. Now, yes, we protested this with the league president. Oh, they're not going to do this. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Saturday night, for crying out loud. like to know how to tap dance, huh? All right, let's try that again. That's better. There we go. Don't you wish you had talent? You think you'll ever be able to go straight, you know? Serious question. Come what do you mean, Mr. Shepard? I live a life that is totally blameless, and Charles and I, for years, have just wondered how you get away saying those terrible things on that wonderful station that brings us John Gambler. All those nice things. <laughs> oh, I'm just. La -da 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 Don't worry, there ain't nobody listening. Da -da 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 it's all right. That, no order, isn't it? But, hey, listen, uh, uh, I presume uh, there's one or two victims out there who are listening. And uh, and I had a great moment that happened today. Uh, a couple of days ago, actually, I'm watching on TV, seeing, and, and the halftime comes on. This is a very bad football game. Once in a while, I look at terrible football teams, you know, that... Generally, these channels on Saturday afternoons, they'll have uh, about 5,000 different football games. And, uh, yeah, you can get the, you can get Earth Sinus versus uh, Indianapolis Chiropractic Tech. And uh, they're battling it out, see, for the little green jug, their traditional rivalry. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, I, I watch these games, not to see the game, but to see the halftime ceremony. Because I think the halftime ceremonies are one of the most uh, truly American folk rituals that we've got. Now, all, every country, really, in the Western world plays a version of football. I mean, you know, they play a game in uh, England that's very much like what we call football. I mean, up in Canada, they play. But it's only America, believe me. Only America, where uh, about three minutes before the uh, gun goes. For the end of the first half, you see this great crowd of people gathering down in the end zone there. You see all these chicks with their bottoms hanging out with the sun shining down on them. You see the long, you know, the blonde hair. And all these chicks with the, with the short vest with the little sparkly things all over them. And then you see coming out of the end zone, pow, the gun goes. And how they come. And now it's time for the colorful halftime ceremonies. Oh, man, you talk about folk rituals. There's all kinds of wild, subterranean, Freudian overtones and undertones. It's all there, man. They go marching down. And there she is, the queen of homecoming. You can see the sun glinting on her braces. Look at the da 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 da
And there's the big Chevy dealer from town down there. See him? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're all there. Man, I, I tell you, I love... I, I dig these halftime things. Why? Because, well, I'm going to tell you this. Why? I got a, I got a, a selfish reason why. A selfish reason. Very selfish. You are listening tonight to one of the... Well, it's, I'm a legend. I'm a legend. But not for the reasons you think. Some of our legendary past, you know, when you see guys walk down the street, do you ever think of, of what they must represent to other people in other times, other places, that men carry their legends around with them like little balloons hanging in the air, attached by thin strings to that invisible aura of their life, and they go walking down the streets of existence. And many people, oh yeah, a lot of you listen to me, so what is he legend for? What do you mean legend? You are listening to probably one of the, well, probably, I'll say, I, I just come right out and admit it, the legend has to be honest about himself. Norman Mailer is honest. He comes out and says, I'm the greatest writer in the country. He just comes out and says it. Well, that's a matter of opinion, but nevertheless, you are listening to one of the all-time great B-flat, double B-flat sousaphone players to ever come out of the state of Indiana. is one of the most difficult instruments to master. Many, many are called, but few friends are chosen. It's one of the most difficult instruments to master for a number of reasons. First of all, you have to learn, well, you have to learn crosswind landings at an early age. Begin with to try to play Semper Fidelis in a spanking 45-degree crosswind. That's uh, making maybe 15, 20, 25 knots, gusting to 40 knots. And to go into that coda and to keep up that steady, that steady 160-beat march. <laughs> oh, we had a... Oh, yeah, we used, we used to have about three different uh, tempos, or tempi, if you prefer. And our band would switch from one tempo to the other, see, to, to gas them all. See, we'd come out, we'd do our slow step. Boom, 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 boom. You ought to try that sometime, Saul, okay? Now, you see, all bands go for the fast step. They think this is the... You ought to try the slow one, boy. That's the tough one. 
come on. And all of a sudden, uh, Stinky Davis, our ace, fanatical, maniacal, Nazi-like top head drum major, would go with the, with his whistle. We'd go, we'd shift, we'd shift tempo in mid-step, not at the end of a set, mid-step, a crowd of roar. And then he would two quick, short blasts on the whistle. We'd crack into that simple for Dallas. And there is Shepard. On the end there. Six marching double B-flat sousaphones hitting into a spanking wind. And these were not plastic sousaphone, friends. These were magnificent gold-plated deluxe con double B-flat sousaphones catching the light, moving against that sharp spanking wind and cracking into sepropodalus. Listen to this. Sousaphones in that piece? All right, come on, bring it up. Just you don't have to set it back. Listen. Now listen to the sousaphone. Because you work so hard. I mean, uh, to be in a top marching band, I mean, is really long, hard, dragging work. 
in the hot sun. Now, uh, one thing I've noticed, big changes come around in, in marching bands, because only a few of them are, are really today marching bands. There's a big difference between the marching band and the show band. Now, the show band is what you generally see. In, in fact, uh, you'll notice that almost all bands today, uh, the halftime ceremony, and you'll hear the, uh, the announcer say, And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Michigan band will do a selection of a medley from the Broadway musical, MAME. They're always doing selections from MAME. Or they're doing something like uh, Oklahoma. Or, uh, and now, a salute to TV, the television themes of all the great television programs of the past. And now, the University of Japan Band will do its famous salute to Peter Gunn. And then they play the theme to Peter Gunn. And <laughs> this is, of course, the showbiz influence on the bands. But then, once in a great while, you'll see a genuine, crack, absolutely top-flight marching band. And that's a specialized art. It has very little to do with uh, doing a medley from Maine. And, uh, you know, 16,000 pom-pom girls are out there, and, and they're shooting off cannons and all that jazz. But a really top-flight marching band, one of the great all-time marching bands, in case you're interested in the New York Yankees of the marching band, is the University of Michigan, uh, that almost every major band studies films of the University of Michigan marching band. Did you know that? Just like... Uh, just like uh, football teams study films of the opponents, marching bands will study films of, say, the University of Michigan. Also, they have there are other great marching bands around, like uh, Florida State is another great marching band. But uh, uh, I, I saw a marching band here a couple of weeks ago out there rehearsing. Now, maybe you don't know about this whole problem of rehearsing in a marching band, but one of the worst things that I ever had happen in my whole academic life happened as a result of a, of a rehearsal in a marching band. Now, you see a sousaphone to begin with. Uh, most people call that a bass horn. It's not a bass horn. Uh, it's not a tuba. Uh, you hear people refer to it as a tuba, but a sousaphone is a sousaphone. And by the way, it was, it was created by John Philip Sousa. And uh, that's why it's called a sousaphone, of course. And the reason that it was called, why he invented this, was because he wanted to have uh, in a marching band uh, when he was creating this whole... Because the whole concept of the marching band really does stem back to Sousa. And when he wanted to, uh, to build a, a, a great marching band, one of the great marching moves, which was the Army Band, the, the U.S. Army Marching Band, uh, he wanted a horn like the tuba, but that could be carried. And so... Uh, they worked around and they finally designed the sousaphone, which, as you know, is the horn that is carried on the shoulder, the great uh, with the big bell over the top. And a really good sousaphone player uh, is the backbone, generally, of a good marching band. That's what makes it sound good. Uh, and if you get a if you get a couple of good guys in the front, up front, you get a good good uh, drum section and a good sousaphone section. Man, you've got yourself a marching band. And they go cracking into it. But I remember, I remember Schwartz. Schwartz was also a tuba player. And he made the switch to sousaphone. Uh, he was a little bit too little. You see, the, the point is to, to, to play uh, a good sousaphone, you got to be, you know, you got to be big. Because when you're wrestling with a sousaphone, man, when that wind is blowing hard out of the north, 
and you're trying to play Semper Fidelis, and the wind is blowing in at you. You know, the sousaphone is the only instrument that plays back. It'll actually play you. I mean, you're not careful. That horn will start blowing you, and the next thing you know, high, thin notes are coming out of your ears. <laughs> but uh, I, this, this, uh, on this particular day, you know, we've been working because we were heading for the state championship. Now, we have, you know, how they have uh, state marching band contests and championships and all that stuff. Well, the marching band was an elite unit that was taken out of the concert band. We had a big concert band. We used to do all the show stuff. We used to do things like, uh, well, what would be the the equivalent of, uh, and now we do a selection of medley from Maine and that. Well, out of the this particular big band, which had about 125 pieces, they had selected this 66-member crack ace military marching band. Now, there were two parts of the marching band. One part, of course, was playing. Uh, what good is a band, you know, if it can march like Billy B. Dam, but, uh, you know, <laughs> plays out of left field somewhere. On the other hand, there are a lot of bands that can play great but can't march well. Now, the problem with having girls in a band is girls just don't walk the same as men. I mean, that's a fact, a physical fact. So this particular band was a military marching band. There were no women at all in it because they wanted that, that concrete, solid, rhythmic, total, fast, maniacal, uh, that military, clipped, crisp, precision beat. And, and uh, they, they, of course, went for tremendously intricate and involved uh, drill formations, all the while playing at maybe 120 beats to the minute, now all the way on up. So they, we started to rehearse usually about, oh, like uh, June, something like that, right after school was out, rehearsing every couple of days. We'd rehearse out in the hot sun uh, <laughs> for, the big, for the big fall season and so on. And once in a while, the band would get an invitation from someplace, you know, to go play and these things. And so you, when, when you made the marching band, after, after having been in the concert band and the orchestra and so on, it was like suddenly getting tapped on the shoulder that you weren't, you know, you're, you're, really, you're really the big time. Because you had to be able to play and march. And since this was a band that had won a lot of national awards and honors, you had to play well. They had auditions. In fact, uh, we used to audition... Uh, every year for the same job. In other words, if you, if, if you weren't just automatically put on this thing. If you had, had a re-audition, see, they, guys would actually get cut from the band because someone would come up and could blow better. Well, every <laughs> every night, me and Schwartz and Snuffy Smith and a guy named Hermie Roller, uh, we were the three ace guys in the sousaphone section. We would practice in the band room. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have gone to schools where you hear them tooting around and uh, you hear the band room once in a while down there, but you never quite know what's going on in there unless you're there. Well, every night at 3 o'clock, the four guys, and there were two guys who would practice in the morning, Fergie would pass them, practice in the morning, and another guy, they would practice because they didn't have the same study halls we had. And every night at 3 o'clock, me and Schwartz, and uh, Dunker, and a couple of other guys, would start rehearsing our sousaphone work. And we'd first run over scale. Now, you don't just sit down and blow a sousaphone. Oh, no, you've got to warm the sousaphone up. Did you know that? And furthermore, you've got to warm your lip up because, man, if you don't do that, whoo! I mean, it's like, it's like going out and throwing a fastball in a ball game without warming up. You can kill your lip for life. 
And so we'd sit down and go, and you blow the thing out, get a little, you know, open up the spit valve, and you take your. Uh, I used to carry my my uh, my own uh, mouthpiece. You see, we each, we each had our own mouthpieces and so on. And I used to carry my German silver mouthpiece around in my pocket all the time. And I would carry it there, so I would always have it warm. If you ever blow into a cold mouthpiece, friend, that's uh, bad news. And so I'd carry this mouthpiece around in my pocket to keep it warm. And once in a while, when I was sitting in, the, you know, a regular class, like I'm sitting in, the, oh, uh, oh, geometry or something like that, I have this mouthpiece, and I'm just holding it up in my, my fist, and I'm playing different, different uh, numbers. Uh, I'm running over in my mind different things we played. And you can actually uh, blow a horn, you know, without the horn present. You blow it in your own mind. And you, so you take this mouth. You're blowing away there. And I'm, I'm thinking of the fingering and I'm blowing the notes. And I'm playing everything. And I'm playing El Capitan, the NC4 March. I'm playing On the Mall. I'm playing uh, Semper Fidelis. I'm playing all of them. See, El Capitan. And I'm, by the way, that was a groovy march. You ever heard El Capitan? Uh, you'll find it on that cut. G- give me El Capitan. Uh, okay, this is WOR New York. Uh, you'll find El Capitan on that, that cut. So you dig it out there, and while you're getting that queued up, uh, El Capitan was a very important march for this particular band that I was in because El Capitan was always the march that we used to make our entrance with. Every band, you know, has a regular program. They work out this whole thing, and, and they rehearse this. They work on this thing all year long. And uh, each number in a good marching band's repertoire is all carefully programmed so that it has something to do with the beat and the tempo, and it makes a statement about the one before it, and it makes a statement about the one after it. And this was the opening number, our, our, our uh, what they call a fanfare number. And we used to come out with all the brass would come marching forward, see. And we were, we're marching in place. Have you heard the band doing this? And the, and the drummers are just uh, using muffled sticks, see, so that they don't hear it all over the, all over the stadium. And the, the, the sticks. We're marching in place. And then the, the, uh, the trumpets and the brass, the trombones, would, would all go out in a big fan out on the goal line. And then it would be a moment of silence. Then we had, of course, Stinky Davis. Now, a lot of people don't know the function of a drum major, which is different from a majorette. Now, a majorette, in most cases, is merely a twirler. Uh, she also represents a kind of sexual symbol. This is the majorette. But in a crack marching band, a military marching band, there is no such thing as a majorette. This is a drum major. He is the officer in charge. That's really what the major means. He is the officer in charge of this marching band. And in, in the very early days of the British, back in the times of, uh, of uh, the 19th century, when, you know, that this, uh, this has its beginnings in those days, the, the uh, regimental bands of the, uh, the British regiments. The uh, drum major was really a sergeant major. And uh, he was he was the CO actually. He he operated. He was in an effective charge of this band. He set the beat, the the tempo, and even the attitude. And so the drum major is dynamic. 
I mean, a really dynamic drum major, only one part of his job is twirling. The other part is discipline and steely eye. The other part is fanaticism. And so we had one of the great drum majors. In fact, he was a three-time national twirling and drum major champion. Now, that's different from a twirling champ. He was, he was, he was a great director of a band. He was a fanatic, an insane nut, and totally hated by everybody. Everybody hated this guy's guts. And Stinky Davis had a back that was bowed like a, like a bow. He, would, he, he was about six feet one, but his back would bend over. He defied the law of gravity. No, he didn't do that. No, that's, that's exaggerated. He was, just, he was just ramrod. And he had this, this gray, steely eye. And he wore this tremendous shake on. He's the only drum major I ever knew who bought his own uniforms. He did not use anything to, anything to do with the school. And he had all the stuff tailored for him. So he was a professional drum major and a fanatical twirler. And this guy always worked with two batons. And he would keep these two batons moving all the time, weaving constantly. He didn't do all the kind of stuff, you know, the chicks do, you know, the business of throwing them under the feet and the legs. He just kept these two batons moving all the time. And he used to use two of them. One of them he would carry in a sheet on the side. And the other baton, of course, was a directing baton. And then he would sheet this thing. The baton is going straight ahead. And he wore this big black shako, shako, you know, the big hat they call. That's a shako, tremendous big black one he had. And, and I remember one time when one of the guys went out and got this thing. He got so bugged. But he never, he never went out after that, though, without using it. Somebody got a silver skull. Uh, I'm talking about a little some kind of a strange badge. And the skull was put in the front of his shako. And you could see this skull. When he would turn around, you see that silver skull. All the lights are flashing on him. He had these two steely eyes, absolutely expressionless. And he would stand out on the five-yard line with the brass all lined up in a great flat line on either side. And behind it, of course, is the, is the, is the body of the band. In, in what they call, we call it a, a loose fanfare formation. And at the very end, uh, right at the end of the end zone, would be the sousaphones. And we are sort of at the, at the reverse point. And then he would, he would start giving this beat. He would just barely move his baton. You couldn't see it from the stands. He'd wait till the precise moment a psychological moment. Then he'd go, and then he'd do two quick toots on the whistle. Just go, doot, doot, little two quickies. Doot, doot. And then, we would move into this close formation. Like suddenly, it's a blot of, if you can imagine, a blot of ink cut, coming together instead of going out. We'd go, zap. We'd go close together. Right through the goal post, we would go. Boom, boom, boom. Now that's El Capitan, the captain. Then we would we would move straight on out to about the forty yard line. At just about the beat that they're playing it right now. Then as we hit the 40-yard line, we would begin two long, thin lines that would move out towards each of the sidelines. The band would split. 
and a great big Y. And right down the middle of the field, the eight sousaphones would go straight down the middle of the field playing this part. Listen. Come on, bring it up. Come on, Ed. Devil, are you all it? What are you doing in there? Good Lord. <laughs> Holy smokes, we will be undone by knaves before it's all over. Let's try it again. Got it in there? Okay. And we would march down. Come on, let's go, Ed. Come on, don't just sit on your top. Bring it up. That's it. There we go. And we would split. By the way, that was Ed. Don't blame Herb for that one, gang. Go ahead. And we would split two great big... Hear that part... By that time, of course, now you reset it. By that time, the crowd is flipping because this band, this particular band, was one of the absolutely best military marching bands in the entire Midwest. In fact, uh, the band used to get invitations to things like uh, we would play at the University of Michigan games. Uh, I remember one time we played in the halftime at the, the Notre Dame-Illinois game, which was, you know, big, fantastic game. So these are big invitations. And the, it, was a, it was a crack military band. Well, one night, old Shep, you know, we, we, I knew every, everything that we did by heart. I mean, I knew every move. I knew every, every note, every fingering. At the one day, we're out rehearsals, see? Now, maybe you don't know about these band rehearsals. There's something else again, friend. Uh, especially under, under Stinky Davis. Stinky would, would, would rehearse us, first of all, by sections. And uh, while, uh, let's say, the uh, reed and the clarinet sections, or maybe, let's say, the uh, trombone section is out there working away, we would be working over on the other sideline working with what we're doing, the sousaphone section. And uh, then, uh, after about 15 minutes or maybe 20 minutes of section work, he would bring the band together. And we had this guy who was the teacher, really. He was uh, the top uh, marching band director, at least in that area. And, in fact, wrote two textbooks on it, in case you're curious. Yeah, it's still used. And so he would, he would look us over. And then he would say, all right, I want number uh, 17. And he's up on a stand. He said, I want number 17 in the book. And, uh, by the way, do you have on the wall on that, uh, that cut in there? Do you? You do. Look, look, uh, just look. Uh, Lee, take a look at it quick. Get up there and uh, move. Come on, on move. Uh, you can? All right, well, yeah, it's, I, I thought you had it. Now, this one, this one, he would say, all right, now, because we always used to work up with some something uh, fairly easy and uh, fairly with it, see. And uh, I remember uh, his name was Wilson. Mr. Wilson, we get up and he'd say, all right, now, I want all of you, he said, I want, I want you to work on number four in a book. And we had our own band book. He says, on the mall, and I want to hear crisp section work. I don't want to hear any, I don't want to hear any, uh, any of these drag notes. I don't want to hear anybody uh, faking it either. I want crisp section work. And if you come to a section you don't know, don't fake it. I don't want to hear any faking. Because I can hear it. And we were all standing there waiting, see. 
Because you see, faking it is, is, is the thing you do. Uh, I mean, uh, if you don't know uh, the notes, you, you fake it. And if you're a good musician, you, you can get by with it. But uh, not with Wilson. He'd stand there. He knew every note of every march that was ever published. And he could hear them all. And so he's up on this stand. See, if you think Toscanini was something with a, with a, uh, you know, with a symphony orchestra, you should have seen, you should have seen uh, uh, that nut Wilson with a marching band. Because he could hear every note. And he knew the exact tempo that everything should be played at. And he has these big horn-rimmed glasses. And he'd been an ace band director at about three universities, and he'd been uh, himself a trumpet player in about 19 fantastic... He got scholarships for this, you know. He was a big-timer. And so he would say, all right, now, I want to hear number four in the book, and I want to hear it at this tempo. And he would go... He'd move his stick. All right, now, let's go. One, two, three. Okay. And he's listening. Oh. Every note. All right, who lost up in the clarinet section? Now, come on, pick it up. All right, somebody's faking at the French horns. Come on, now. If you don't know it, don't play it. That was on the mall. <laughs> and then then that that the, the terrible day though. We we would finish musical rehearsal, which was great. I mean I always dug the musical side of it. But then Stinky Davis would take over. And Davis would line us all up down, way down at the south end of the field. And Davis would start lecturing us. All right, now listen, you guys. You know what happened last week at the George Rogers-Clark game. I don't have to tell you. Now listen. I want to see a lot of knees moving. Together. I don't want to see any guts hanging out. Pull in your guts, Schwartz. When I blow the whistle, I want action. And by the way, he was one of the few drum majors I ever heard of who had the power to drop people from the band if they weren't doing it. He really was an officer. And that's why we hated him. I mean, how would you like to be a kid going to school and there's another kid that's an actual officer over you? I mean, who could bust you? I mean, bust you. Because we got credit, too, you know. We got high school credit for being in this band. He could flunk you. And he did. I remember the time when he dropped Billy Singleton. And they had a fantastic fist fight right out on the field. This was about the third or fourth week we were working. And Billy Singleton was a trumpet player. And one day, he came out about 15 minutes late to the field. Everybody was rehearsing. Stinky stopped the band. And here comes Singleton walking over under the stands with his trumpet. He just stopped the band. He just stood and waited. Singleton moved into his position on the line, which was second from the left in the trumpet line. Stinky didn't say a word. He just took his thumb and went like this. Out. Just moved his thumb. Out. 
You know, like an umpire says, you're out, just out. Singleton lowered his trumpet. Stinky went out. With that, Singleton walked out of the bed, walked up to the front, and says, make me. Stinky did. That was the end of Singleton and the band. By the way, after Stinky got through with them, I don't think Singleton even played a trumpet for a couple of months. So there was a kind of tension all the time when Stinky was out in front. First of all, he had an ego that made the Empire State Building look like a teepee. His ego started at about 20 feet above the ground and worked up. Unbelievable ego. And that's what it took. And he was fantastic with self-discipline himself. This guy used to rehearse twirling maybe 10 hours a day. I mean, outside of school. That's all he ever did. Had no friends. I, never, I didn't know, I never knew anybody who knew this guy outside of school. He would just sort of materialize. I'll tell you the kind of guy he was. One time he showed up in a history class that I was in wearing a monocle. Can you imagine the kind of guts it took for a guy in, in an Indiana school to wear a monocle? Well, that's what Stinky did. Fanatic. And then came that day. It was a Thursday. Like any other Thursday. Except that it was hotter than blazes. And I am walking towards the practice field. I got my jacket hung over my neck, sweating. I'm carrying my sousaphone at rest. You carry your sousaphone on your other shoulder when it's rested. And I'm dragging off towards the field. And I see the band is sort of half-assembled there. It's about three or four minutes before we were supposed to begin rehearsing. It's Thursday. we got a big show that we're going to do Friday night. But I know everything. It's ridiculous. I know the whole thing. We've been rehearsing this stuff every night for a week. I know every last step. I'm tired. I had a bum day. I kind of half-sprained my ankle in swimming class. I was kind of bugged. You know, you have those days, you know, what the heck, you know. And I see Schwartz, the perennial beaver, who never chickened out on anything. Schwartz is about 20 feet ahead of me, lugging his sousaphone. And behind me is Snuffy Smith, a bad marcher. He wasn't much of a marcher, but one of the best sousaphone players I ever heard, a magnificent player. And he's behind me. And the three of us are trucking out to that field. I turned to the right, turned around and headed back to the band room. Now, what made me do it, I don't know. You know, just that feeling of goofing off. What a goof on, what the hell. And I slide my sousaphone back into its cabinet and these big wooden racks in the band room. I put my sousaphone back up there and cut across the hall, out the side door, and five minutes later, I'm sitting in the Red Rooster, knocking down a cheeseburger and a black cow. And sitting with me 
is one of the guys who played in the baritone section. He is also knocking down a black cow and a cheeseburger. And off in the distance, we can hear faintly, oh, so faintly, we can hear the band faintly in the distance, so faintly. You can just hear them, see? Just drifting in. They're playing away. And here were two absolute top-flight aces from the band knocking down a cheeseburger with a little piccalilli and a little chili sauce. It's a French fries and a black cow. And they're knocking themselves out in the hot sunlight. I'm cool on top of it, see? A little realizing I am laying the groundwork for one of the most embarrassing moments I ever lived through. And I don't know whether I ever really did live through it. You know, there are people who say that terrible things that happen to us in our lives never truly leave us. But quite possibly had this not happened to me, I could have gone on to become God knows what. Johnny Carson, Soupy Sales, who knows what great man in this world. And they're out there doing on them all. Listen to them. And I remember looking over across at Pete, this guy that was with me. I said, Pete, it's too hot, the Rarys, right? And Pete says, yeah. And he's chewing away at his cheeseburger, and I'm chewing away at mine. An old Big John, you know, when you go to school, there's always a guy that runs the local lunchroom. Big John is back there, mopping up the counter, dishing out the cheeseburgers to the guys who were goofing off from algebra class. We could hear the band out there working. Great, you know, there's nothing more exciting than the illicit. And they're out there in that hot sunlight whistling, you know. I used to hate that whistling bit. You ever tried to play a sousaphone for three hours in a hot sun, a spanking wind, and then try to whistle? down to cheeseburgers. said, I think I'll have another one. So I had another one. Just enjoying it. It was kind of cool in there. The air conditioning was going. At five minutes before the end of rehearsal, I got up and sort of sauntered out. And I knew that uh, I would join the crowd and the band as they went trickling back to the band rehearsal hall. And that's what I did. The band came wandering back, all covered with sweat, and I just sort of walked in among them, along with Pete, on top of it, old Shep. And then came the moment. Would you please give me El Capitan, if you will? No, Semper Fidelis is when it actually happened. Give me Semper Fidelis. And when you get it set up, let me know. So I... That... Night, I'm kind of taking it easy. I'm, 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 remember this. I'm also a state champion sousaphone player. You're listening to a guy who won the year before. I won a gold medal playing the sousaphone at the state contest. I was also a member of the crack marching band. We had more medals than we could put in a hat, each one of us. 
Now comes the big night. We are standing out in the end zone, ready for the big show. We move on out through El Capitan. Everything's cool and copacetic. We go through the NC4 march. Beautiful. We then knock off uh, on the mall. Right down the line. Shepard is picking up his heels, moving his knees. Shepard is blowing that sousaphone like he's seldom blown it before. There's 25,000 people watching every move with this great marching band. And out ahead of us, we had these big banners. We had two big banners. One banner was the U.S. flag, and the other banner was the flag that we had, the big school flag, a big purple flag that flowed, and behind it, the big seal of the state of Indiana with gold fringe. And on it, we had all these little medals that were sewn, these patches, various great awards that we had won. We'd won this first place, number one, gold medal, Number two, silver, gold, bronze, all over the world. We'd won these great medals. And our band is marching on out with just two flags ahead. And that drum section, boy, were they sharp that night. It was a beautiful, crisp night. One of those great, groovy nights. We got down into the far end zone. Got that? We countermarched. We countermarched again. And Stinky Davis was moving us like some vast machine. And Shepard, you know, you get that great feeling of being on top of it, man. I'm moving to the left and the right. My mind keeps saying left, left, the blank. I'm playing a horn, right, the blank. Left, forward, my counter, march, one, two, up, one, two. Then I'm moving back and forth. We're moving like some beautifully well-oiled machine. And now we are moving on out towards about the 30-yard line. At Stinky, then, motions... For number 12 in the big book, this was our big thing. We, this, was, this is the hardest number we had, and it was always one of the big high points of our total show, Semper Fidelis. He gives that little motion, so he put up two fingers like that, meaning number 12 in the book, see? And then he goes, and we start playing it. Shepard rips into that first chorus, saying, boy, moving like a shot. Everything's cool and copacetic. You got that, see, up to this point, right? Shepard's moving. Look at him. Up ahead, he sees Singleton, Cousin Croft. This was two days before Singleton's last day in a band. We didn't know it at the time. And there goes Dunker, moving on out, Ross making a beautiful little blight turn. And I can see those knees moving all around him. Now, we had a beautiful pinwheel that we did at this point, right at the end of this trumpet. Then we'd go out on a big pinwheel, and we'd spin around this great pinwheel, and Shepard is spinning out there at the end. Each sousaphone was at the end of one line. Great big, ten tremendous lines moving out. The sousaphones were moving on out. Great big pinwheel. And right in the middle of it all is Stinky Davis. He's at the hub of this thing. And he's watching us. Then he blows two quick short flats. Like that. And boom, we come back together again. Now we're coming back. Shepard's moving. Oh, he's sharp. It's right at the end of this third cadenza. Stinky raises his baton and does something he had never done before. He gave two quick blasts of the whistle and a long one. What the hell is this? What the hell's going on? Then all of a sudden, all around me, I see marching figures going in all different directions. Crash! A trombone! Smashes right into me. I spin around. Where the hell am I going? 
I see three clarinets going this way. I see a sousaphone player going up and down, off that direction. I follow him for a minute. He disappears. I see another clarinet going up. I don't know what they're doing. And all of a sudden, Shepard is marching down the center of the field, all by himself. I see the band forming. I try to catch up with them again. I see there goes three French horns around me again. I hear another quick whistle, and once again, Shepard is all by himself. And I see Stinky Davis. His eyes are two glowing coals. Is he barked? And then we stop. They, we, we hit the last note of the, the last line of the coda. And I scurry back in the line, and I can see this, the crowd applauding wildly. Fantastic! The crowd is cheering. I must have been 40 feet out of the band. And now I am back in line, and next to me is Ernie Dunker, who is a superb marching sousaphonist. And Dunker says, you. I can hear him under his breath. We're marching along. We are going down to the center of the field. We're going to make the great big block H now. He says, oh, you. Oh, boy. He says, wait till, wait till Davis busts you, Dad. I could see Davis was back, and his the back of his neck is beet red. Beet red. They had rehearsed an entirely new formation. And where was I? Knocking down the cheeseburgers in the Red Rooster. Knocking down the cheeseburgers. Drinking black cows. Setting it up for the biggest public humiliation of my life. Have you friends ever marched down the middle of a football field to 25,000 screaming people while the band is playing Semper Fidelis and you are whistling Dixie? You can hardly hide when you're in a sousaphone. And it was obvious. Who loused up? I don't think for a minute that the crowd didn't lap it up. They roared. Well, the rest of the evening went by in some kind of a Terrible, bad nightmare. I mean, I'm sitting up in the stands. I don't even see the game. Stinky Davis doesn't say a word. Davis's neck is red all the way up. He's sitting two or three rows down below me. Doesn't say anything. Nothing. The weekend goes by. Monday morning comes out. Hard and cold. That was the day our school newspaper came out. And here was on the front page picture of the marching band playing Semper Fidelis. Right there, covered the whole front page. It says, Sousaphone Ace Makes Boo Boo. And you saw one sousaphone player way up in the upper left-hand corner heading out somewhere towards Nome, Alaska. The rest of the band was doing this beautiful cloverleaf formation. It says, Ace Sousaphone Player Makes Boo Boo. Crowd laps it up. Says last night at the big game between George Rogers Clark, the sousaphone player seen in picture above, made the hit of the season. Oh, God, no. Well, I could hardly wait for the seventh period that day, which was band period. Yeah. I could hardly wait. 
seventh period arrives, Shepard thrags in, looking sheepish, feeling like uh, last week's mashed potatoes. And Mr. Wilson is up on the stand. The band now sits down, ready for indoor rehearsal. Mr. Wilson starts out by saying, that was the best halftime show we ever did. Whoever thought up that great comedy routine, was he being sarcastic? What was he being? I'll never tell you, friends. All I can say to you is that I learned the lesson. I can't figure out what the lesson is. I mean, yet, I'm uh, running it through the lab. I'm trying a little titration on it. Maybe a little litmus paper. But all I got to say, friends, is when you see that band and those halftime ceremonies marching out and striking into the wind, you are seeing a machine that few people understand. Only those that have been in the middle of one know what it's like. And I say to you, hail and farewell, gang out there. And I can still feel that little that little tingling around my lips once in a while when I hear a band playing Semper Fidelis, that little chapped feeling of a guy who's rehearsed long and hard on the second coat of chorus of every known march that was ever printed. Pick up the knees, you guys. Come on, 